Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up on the program today, plenty of time for your reaction to the big news as to what will replace the George Massey Tunnel. And today I'm pleased on behalf of the province of British Columbia to announce that we will be building a new eight-lane immersed tube tunnel to replace the George Massey Tunnel on Highway 99. That was Transportation Minister Rob Fleming speaking just moments ago, unveiling the plan. We have several guests coming on the program to respond to this as well. We'll be opening up the phone lines to take your calls on your thoughts on this. First, though, let's bring in Bridget Anderson, the CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Bridget, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Hi. What is your response to the fact it is going to be an eight-lane tunnel that will replace the George Massey Tunnel? Well, first and foremost, we have waited a long, long time for this announcement. The Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, this has been our top or one of our top regional infrastructure projects uh, and our priorities for a long, long time. You know, we know that the tunnel was built in 1959. We've outgrown the tunnel. Uh, it's had a huge impact on hampering our ability to be competitive uh, in a regional way. So we are really delighted to see this announcement and to see things finally moving ahead. Is it the option that you think is the best choice to replace that crossing? Historically, the Board of Trade has supported a bridge. And let's be clear, there's a number of steps that need to happen before this is going to come to actuality. So there is environmental and consultation steps that must be taken before construction can get underway. Uh, understanding, of course, what the impact is going to be on the salmon population and any concerns that might exist by our Indigenous partners and communities that are in that area. So that work is going to take some time. My understanding from the information that that was released today is that it'll take about three and a half years for that environmental assessment to be done and consultation will also be happening around the same time. So we're still a long ways off on this and you know when you look at the original project that was announced uh, years ago by a former government uh, this does add time and cost to it but let's be clear that you know the business community has been advocating for a new crossing for a long time. We have 80,000 and 90,000 vehicles that use the tunnel each day and population just continues to grow. This has been a choke point for us as the Asia-Pacific gateway, and we really needed action on it, so we are delighted to see that. Uh, you make a, an interesting point, though, in looking at the numbers, the 10-lane bridge that was the original project, which millions were spent getting ready for that, that came in as with a price tag of, I think it was $3.5 billion. Here we have a smaller project with a bigger price tag. Well, times change, and there's inflation and added costs. As would happen in any project. You ask any homeowner who waits to do a project just in their own renovation. So no big surprise there. But what's really important is that will this uh, new project be able to handle not only the current capacity, but future capacity, and looking out, you know, whether we're talking about 10 or 20 or 30 years as our region continues to grow. This is such a major area for the movement of people and goods that we really do need to make sure that we're building for the future. Do you think it is enough then to deal with added capacity. We've got eight lanes. We know two of those lanes will be dedicated to transit. We know there are going to be separated pathways for cyclists and pedestrians, but that means that given the, the lanes left for vehicles, it's not really changing the capacity of what we see with the George Massey Tunnel when there's counterflow dealing with rush hour right now. 
Well, as I said, we know that there are about 90,000 vehicles that use the tunnel each day right now, and the bottleneck is only going to get even worse as our region is expected to grow by over a million people by 2050. So the experts have uh, have all weighed in on this to see whether this uh, new crossing would be able to handle future capacity, and that is one thing that remains to be uh, really important, and particularly around transit. When we're looking at trying to get people out of their vehicles, um, I'd be very interested to hear you know some of the more details details around how transit and future transit builds will be able to uh, be implemented in this project. Do you think it will be enough then with the expansion that's planned at Delta Port? Listen, I mean, any announcement was certainly so welcome today, and it is such a major congestion point that we needed this addressed urgently. We needed it addressed years ago. So we need to understand, um, first and foremost, what this environmental assessment impact is going to be in the consultation. As I mentioned, we are not starting construction right away. It is, it is years away. So fully understanding that, and then understanding what the traffic flow is going to look like, whether you mentioned Delta Port or just the movement of people and goods in that region. Uh, The completion date, and again, like you said, a whole lot of things have to still happen, the environmental assessment being one of them and other things as well. The completion date, I believe, is 2030. That's still nine years away. That's a long time away. That's nearly a decade. And we already know from the business community that the bottleneck at the crossing already hurts businesses' ability to operate efficiently, which has a huge impact on our regional competitiveness. So good to hear that there are going to be some measures taken uh, right away on some of those artery kind of uh, areas, but, you know, are the routes rather. But nine years is a long time. And so we really need um, urgent uh, action on this and recognizing that environmental assessment takes time and consultation takes time. This is an urgent matter that affects our competitiveness as a region. And so really encourage the federal government to weigh in. We're waiting to hear whether they're coming to the table with funding and maybe more details might come on that uh, in the coming days. But that's also a piece of the puzzle that needs to happen um, for this project to go ahead. Do you think that's perhaps why we had this announcement as a federal election campaign is getting underway? I could not say whether the federal election campaign had something to do with that. I do know that there have been negotiations and talks ongoing for many, many months between all levels of government on this project. It has been a priority for for many, many people for some time. So again, delighted to see that things are finally moving ahead today. All right. Uh, Bridget Anderson, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Thanks so much, Jill. Thanks for being with us. We're going to take some time now to uh, take a listen or to figure or find out exactly what is happening today in Afghanistan. As Afghans and others barrage Kabul's airport in a bid to flee. We have received assurances from the Taliban. That they are prepared to provide the safe passage of civilians to the airport. The State Department's Ned Price and White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. We take it for what it is. This is not about trust. This is about verifying. Sullivan says there have been reports of people being beaten outside the airport. This morning, the Taliban demanded to see documents before allowing occasional passengers inside and fired warning shots to disperse those trying to push in. Sagar Magani, Washington. All right, let's bring in Jasmine Imak, author of The Opium Prince. Jasmine also lived in Afghanistan for four years as a child, and she joins us on the line now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. It's a pleasure to be here. What are your thoughts on what you're seeing unfold on the ground and the images and video that we're seeing out of Afghanistan? 
you know, I feel that I am both shocked and not surprised, uh, if you see what I mean. I, I find it shocking that the United States decided to withdraw the way that it did. I think it's uh, an extremely cynical move and a destructive one, both in the short term and the long term. And at the same time, I am not surprised. I think it was quite predictable that if the U.S. withdrew the way that it did, that this would happen. And my understanding is that Biden did receive counsel from the Pentagon telling him that this would happen and uh, and to not make this move. So I'm I'm just appalled, uh, honestly, at, at what's happened. And I don't find any justification for it. There is no moral justification, no strategic geopolitical consideration either. And I really think it comes down to the fact that Joe Biden wanted to be the president who ended this conflict. And I think the choice of September 11th as the date he had set for the completion of U.S. withdrawal is particularly cynical. And it really draws attention to the fact that his considerations were not strategic or geopolitical, at least in the global sense. They were strategic in the domestic sense in that he hoped this would uh, set the Democratic Party well up for the midterm elections and for the next presidential election. And I'll say that I voted for Joe Biden and I would do so again, not least because I see no other reasonable options in the States and because, uh, you know, his predecessor, Donald Trump, was an apocalyptic clown tyrant, as I call him. But I think that I wish we had better choices. And I think it's a tragedy in every way. What are your thoughts on Joe Biden's comments a couple of days ago saying that the goal was never to bring prolonged stability to to I guess, fix the problems. The goal was to stop a potential terrorist threat or attack against the U.S. and that he felt that that goal had been achieved. I did listen to that speech and I found it, again, extraordinarily cynical because it's simply not true that he thinks that. He uh, just some years ago said, in fact, that the goal was to bring about some semblance of actual stability to Afghanistan and that the mission was not restricted to just killing Osama bin Laden and getting rid of al-Qaeda. So I think it's a convenient reimagining of his past position, and he's saying what he needs to say in order to justify a decision that very quickly looked to be unjustifiable when the world saw the images of Afghanistan falling within really a matter of days. So I don't think it's true. Uh, I think it's hypocritical. And I also think that if you really did mean it's very short sighted because the whole reason Al Qaeda was able to rise in Afghanistan was because of the Taliban. Al Qaeda was not made up mostly of Afghans. It's mostly an Arabic movement coming from Wahhabis and Salafists, which are Arabic versions of Islam. They are not Afghan versions. And while the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan in the 1980s, about 10 years, uh, the Americans very deliberately tried to recruit Islamists from all over the world, knowing that they would make a powerful fighting force against the Russians, uh, which they did. So the U.S. was right in that regard. But after that, you know, the U.S. simply abandoned the country to these extremists that it had quite enthusiastically recruited before. And to pretend that the only goal was to get rid of al-Qaeda is nonsense. And I, I think that there's a very good chance that if not al-Qaeda, some other Islamist movement also organized We'll find a safe haven uh, in the Afghanistan that is now being recreated because of the U.S. withdrawal and not just al-Qaeda. I think that there are a whole lot of, uh, you know, burgeoning Islamists around the world who will find this to be inspirational. And I think that there is now a very public display and evidence that the U.S. in fact does abandon its allies, which Osama bin Laden said that they would. 
and who believe that if you just stick it out over time, the U.S. will eventually bail on you. You know, the Taliban have an expression, you have the watches, but we have the time. And I think that's exactly what they've proven. They think that they can just exhaust the U.S. and that once the U.S. bails on them, they will again be the, the space to create an Islamist caliphate which other terrorist organizations will, I'm sure, take advantage of. I know you taught history, you taught international affairs at various colleges and universities and talked about this, talked about what was happening in Afghanistan with with students and about the events of September 11th. Are you still in touch or do you have friends, colleagues in Afghanistan? Uh, I, I do, both, in both cases, yes. I am in touch with students and it's amazing to think that this is now 20 years ago and the people who were really kids back then are now 40-year-old adults. And several of them have reached out to me and said, gosh, you know, Professor Anak, I remember us talking about this when it was happening and everybody was so shaken and moved and upset and wanted to understand it. And I ran an entire class on understanding how this could possibly have happened. And, uh, you know, my students were quite confused and they thought that Afghans were Arabs and they didn't understand the difference between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And we went through all that and talked about the fact that the, the Taliban arose out of these Islamist fighter movements that the West had a hand in creating together with Pakistan. And that if the U.S. and in general, an alliance uh, of other nations didn't manage to stabilize the country, it would probably become a haven for this sort of thing again in the future. And I was actually a bit optimistic at the time, feeling that militarily the Taliban can probably be ousted pretty quickly, which they were, and that if the U.S. simply sticks around for a bit, I think they can stabilize it. Um, but, you know, the big catastrophic mistake was to split the military effort and digress into Iraq. Uh, and the U.S. did that just two years into being in Afghanistan, which was, I think, a military strategic really disastrous decision, and it made it much harder to stabilize the country and I, I certainly think Bush Cheney blamed a lot of the blame for what is really an inexplicable policy decision to, to go into Iraq, followed now by another, you know, catastrophic policy decision. So, yeah, it, it's been really sort of heartbreaking to follow up with my students 20 years later and see that this thing that was a formative event in their youth uh, is now upon them again. It feels nightmarish. What about Canada's role? There's been criticism of Canada not acting quickly enough, not following through on promises to bring interpreters and to bring others out of Afghanistan who are now in very, very dangerous situations. Yeah, this is one of the really tragic aspects of all this. I think that, it, well, I understand Canada is being a, in a bit of a bind because the U.S. does set the tone on this and has the largest presence there. So I think once the U.S. withdrawal began, that's what the Taliban were looking for. And once it started pouring into the city, uh, all the cities, including Kabul, I don't think that the Canadian government could have anticipated that or done much more at the time. However, I, I think that overall, to have begun a withdrawal without making sure that visas and travel plans were in place for the Afghan interpreters and the many thousands of others who worked with Canada is a problem. And I don't know how far along the Canadian government was when it was beginning to deliver these visas and create them. I know there were problems with the application process, for example, but I suspect that, that Ottawa thought it had some time. Uh, and I, I don't think they anticipated that Washington would pull out the, as quickly as it did or the way that it did. And I'm sure that they believe they had a little bit more time to ensure everyone got out. And as I understand it, they have they have moved very quickly in recent days to try and get out as many people as they possibly can. 
you know, and that's one of the things that is so very wrong here is that the credibility of the West is just shattered by the fact that we made promises to people who, who really risked their lives. And now I'm hearing things like in Biden's speech that how well Afghans weren't willing to fight. And it sort of depicts Afghans as lazy and cowardly. And it's really kind of hilarious if it wasn't so tragic, because not long ago, Afghans were being depicted as these peerless, fearless warriors and fighters. Both stereotypes are exaggerated, but the Afghans have never been afraid to fight. That's for sure. And they did eventually get the Soviets out. And before that, they also got the English out. They're called the Graveyard of Empires for a reason. So... You know, I think that the abandonment, certainly, of people who worked with us is the worst thing of all. Uh, the credibility is sort of shattered by just abandoning people like this. Uh, and, you know, I fear it's sort of a turning point for the West in general and its standing in the world affairs. And one other question. I'm curious your thoughts on the Taliban that we see now. It seems a bit more media savvy, saying things like women will be respected, although I think that means women will be respected under the, the law that the Taliban sees as the law that, that they must follow. What, are you, what do you think the country will look like going forward? You're absolutely right, Jill. Their, their interpretation of words like respect and fairness and kindness are completely different than most other people's. They don't hear those terms the way you and I do. So when they say they will respect women, it doesn't mean that they're not going to be cruel to them. It means that they will interpret, they have a very particular interpretation of Islam that I have never encountered Muslims who had the same interpretation of Islam as these, these people do. Uh, and I think that you are probably in for something extremely dark. I think they're media savvy enough to know that they might not inflict as many horrors on civilians now while the public is watching. But I think they also know that the Western attention span for things that are happening in quote-unquote exotic countries is quite short. And that once this leaves our headlines, I think they will revert to being the way they always were. And we should all remember that for many years, there were newspaper articles about what the Taliban was doing to people, including stoning women to death for things like wearing nail polish or laughing in public. Uh, it was an absolute hellscape. And frankly, the West just didn't react that much. And the more we ignored it, the worse they got. And they eventually got so brazen that they staged 9-11, as you know. So I don't believe at all that Afghanistan is going to look in the way that we are optimistically hoping, or that we have the same understanding as the Taliban does about what constitutes respect to human rights. I think it's going to be a disaster. And I think the Afghans know it. And that's why you're seeing the mass exodus you're seeing. And part of what is so difficult to hear is people saying, well, you know, there are radical Muslims in Afghanistan. This is basically the regime they want. And well, obviously not, because they wouldn't be trying to head for the exits uh, in the way that they are. And I will say the ones trying to escape, I would certainly hope that Western countries welcome them, because the ones trying to escape are exactly the ones who are not radical Muslims. They are not the people you need to be afraid of. They are the people who see things more like Westerners do uh, and who do not want any part of this. They see things more like the rest of the world does. So I hope we will be respectful to the people who are exiting now. All right, Jasmine, IMAC, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks, Jill. It was my pleasure. We started the show talking about the big announcement, the plans to replace the aging Massey Tunnel. We now know that the plan as it stands now is an eight-lane tunnel under the Fraser River to replace the Massey, coming in with a cost of about $4.15 billion, the completion date set for 2030. You've been saying a lot about this on the buzz line, which I will share later on in the program. Right now, though, we are joined by the mayor of Delta, George Harvey, to talk more about this. Mayor Harvey, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for the invite. It's been a great day. 
A lot of people are questioning, though, the decision to go ahead with eight lanes instead of 10, to go ahead with a tunnel instead of a bridge. Why, in the end, was that decision made? Well, that's the province's decision, of course. Um, but regardless whether it's uh, you know six lanes or eight lanes or 12 lanes, it's all going to be dependent upon the success of a really good transit system. And not a transit system that just takes us as it does now, as you know, to River Rock and Richmond uh, for the Bridgeview Station, but it has to have a dispersal within that transit system to make it robust. So that's what I'll be pushing as mayor now, which I said before, my vision is for a green Highway 99 corridor with ability to, for people to get out of their cars. And the young people, most people, they want to do that but it has to be better than it is now. Most of the growth that is anticipated over the next uh, 20, 30 years is going to be south of the river, and I've got to push TransLink along with Mayor Brody and Chief Baird from the Twasin First Nations uh, to push TransLink to ensure that they finally pay attention to south of the Fraser. That's key for this. How is it going to be better, though? I understand that two of the eight lanes are going to be dedicated to rapid bus, not rapid transit, though. So how does that make it better? Well, I... I I'm going to be pushing that it's not just rapid buses exist today. It's going to be a rapid transportation as it's going to exist 10 years from now or nine years from now. The advancements that's being made with regards to types of buses that are, could be for the future, autonomous buses, it's amazing. And I'll be pushing TransLink along with my fellow mayors to ensure that we're looking at that and we, that's what's necessary at, you know, once this is open. Is not what exists today, but what exists in the future. But not something like an extension of the Canada Line or a SkyTrain-type project? Well, what they're finding in the States is that by the new uh, mechanisms of automation and transponders, etc., with buses, it's actually more efficient to have buses and a lot less cost and a lot quicker uh, by ut- utilizing the new technology that's coming. So I think this is, you know, we couldn't wait anymore. I'm very worried about the uh, fact that this tunnel is not seismic at all. We have a little bit of shake that could close it. And what would our lives be if that crossing was taken away from us by such a thing as a, a shake or an earthquake? But uh, sooner sooner they get that shovel in the ground, and that's what we'll be pushing, the sooner we're going to be able to relax and have a new crossing. And you must recognize, too, and I know the readers or your listeners should also, it's just not, this isn't replacing the old 1960, 1959 vintage tunnel that exists today. You know, it's, I'm just saying uh, when we were coming back, what a, what a terrible way to invite people who are coming into our region, coming through the tunnel for the first time to see beautiful Metro Vancouver, City of Vancouver, by uh, going through that tunnel. That's the problem now. That's what's going to be you know, much more improved. And you look at the Cassiar Tunnel. I don't hear any complaints about the Cassiar Tunnel. That's modern technology. This will be modern technology. Whether it was a bridge or whether it was a tunnel, I always said, you know, I'm agnostic to it get the new replacement done as soon as possible. And finally, the province has made a decision, and I'm very pleased that we're moving forward. We are moving forward, but we now have a completion date set for 2030. A lot of people have been pointing out today, had we gone ahead with the 10-lane bridge, it would be 80% done right now. Yeah, but that's looking back, isn't it? Uh, right, it was going to be a bridge. But unfortunately, you know, if you're looking at what, you know, the bridge, the Liberals lost the election, and then they lost the next one. So it's this government that is responsible for determining what the replacement is. And I respect that because it's a provincial asset. And at least they made the decision. And that's what I'm happy about, that we can move forward. And I can start working uh, with our staff to make sure it's the best connections to the to the new system as possible for the people of Delta. And you're a former Ladner resident. We need a second way out of Ladner. And this is our opportunity to make one happen.
When, can you talk a bit more about the lanes that will be dedicated to cyclists and pedestrians? Because that does seem a bit different. I, I, I don't, I can't think of another tunnel, at least in this area, in this region, that has an underwater cyclist and pedestrian pathway. How do you anticipate or how do you envision that working? Well, the same way it works in Europe. Uh, they're very common there. And uh, so that we're actually bringing technology that's been in place in Europe for many years. And I'm looking forward to seeing more insofar as the design. Very rough schematics right now, as you can appreciate. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. And again, we're just using technology that's available in, in other areas of the world that's been very successful. Um, but again, it's up to the province. This is the province's asset. My job as mayor is to get them to make a decision as soon as possible. Finally, we're there. And my job now is to push for a really robust transit system that's futuristic, not just putting in what exists today. But are you asking people then to kind of take a leap of faith that this will be completed by 2030 and when we get to 2030, there will be such advances when it comes to rapid transit, that's going to all fall into place? Well, that's, that's my job as mayor, yes. And again, uh, my worry is that we could lose this crossing because of its age. I've said before, it's rotting and it is. It's uh, best before date is approaching us very quickly and we need to have a new crossing. So it's up to the province, it's their asset to decide what they want to build. Um, you know, they consulted with the Metro Vancouver mayors. And when I first became a mayor and called a meeting with my fellow mayors in the region, including the First Nations, quickly realized that, you know, Delta can't just be up the voice alone fighting in an empty room. You know, we have, we have to put on our metro regional hats and then get a consensus. And that's what the province and the premier asked me directly, get the mayors on side as to what they want to build, and they gave that to them, and that's what's happening now. But I, again, I just was very concerned how long this was going. Um, I'm really pleased that they finally announced it, and we can get a new crossing for the people of Delta and south of the Fraser as, you know, within a nine-year period. Uh, this announcement comes as we are early uh, in the early days of the federal election campaign. Have you heard any promises from the federal leaders, or are you anticipating they will come through with promises of funding? Well, uh, you know, talk to our member of Parliament, Carla Qualtro, regularly. Uh, the, you know, they are they are committed. I'm really happy though that we didn't have to wait till after a federal election to get the announcement. And I'm very confident. Uh, and the prime minister, uh, the prime minister, has spoken to me directly before. Uh, they are going to be partners in this, and how much it is that that's to be determined. But I'm very confident that federal contribution will be there. And they've stepped up for other projects in the region, such as the SkyTrain in Surrey. Uh, but this is extremely important. It's a trade corridor and the feds will be involved. I'm positive of that. Do you think this size of crossing will be enough to deal with the expansion at Delta Port? Well, who says there's an expansion? I mean, I'm still waiting. I'm still not committed to supporting that at all, uh, based upon the fact that our federal scientists do not agree with the consulting scientists. The port has said to me in in the meetings that we've had, in the federal meetings that I attended and spoke to, uh, they have said to me that they will mitigate to the best of their ability. I can't buy that. I need to see scientific proof supported by the federal scientists that the mitigation can happen. To date, I haven't seen anything to say that that's what's happening. And one other question, something that people have been writing me about today, and this often comes up when we're talking about this crossing. What about the concern that even if you are getting people out of their cars, you're getting more people onto transit, it's still a crossing. There are still people going to be in their private vehicles, that it shifts the bottleneck and makes it worse at the Oak Street Bridge. Well, it's, it's, it's bad at the Oak Street Bridge right now. I got stuck in the tunnel just going through it. Uh, but certainly, uh, we need to have a robust transit system to make it uh, 
to make it, to ensure that the congestion isn't going to happen. But also, you know, we have to think regionally here. Uh, the growth of our industrial lands, uh, both here and in Surrey, south of the Fraser, is happening. That's where people will be having jobs, and hopefully the number of people that have to commute into Vancouver, Burnaby, uh, New Westminster, et cetera, north of the Fraser, that, that will be you know, not, not, much, not as much as an impact it is today. But uh, all these things have to be looked at. The modeling shows that it can work, um, but I'm, I'm, not a big, I'm not a big fan of modeling all the time because there's always surprises. But as mayor, I will have my staff working starting tomorrow, um, working with the provincial ministry of transportation staff again to make this the best network of connections for Delta into the new Highway 99 corridor. All right, George Harvey, mayor of Delta, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for your time. I know a lot of people have been waiting for this announcement, and there is no shortage of opinion. People calling the buzz line, calling into this station, talking about the eight-lane tunnel that will replace the George Massey Tunnel, the completion date of 2030. The price tag right now pegged at $4.15 billion. Well, let's bring in Ian Payton. He is the BC Liberal MLA for Delta South. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. Good afternoon, Joe. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, like everyone else, I think south of the, uh, the Fraser, I'm, I'm very happy that um, there's finally been an announcement by the NDP. I mean, they've been sort of kicking the can down the road for four years. And finally, they've come forward and made an announcement. Of course, it's, you know, really not what I had bought into for all the years I was on Delta City Council and all the different uh, engineering reports that were done. Every engineering report, and I have two major ones in front of me, that ticked all the boxes that a bridge was the better idea, environmentally, cost-wise, all those different things. And suddenly they've decided that um, a tunnel in the bottom of the Fraser River is a better idea, and um, you know, $4.1 billion versus $2.7 billion that we had uh, to build this 10-lane bridge, which was actually under construction up until the NDP killed it. When you talk about the reports that looked at the bridge, a lot of people have been asking today as well, was it, uh, even, was it even possible to build a bridge given the sand, given the type of soil we're talking about in that particular part of Delta? Well, you know, that's kind of a, one of these fallacies that people have loved to talk about on social media for several years now. I mean, uh, uh, these massive steel pilings, Jill, which we still see laying on the side of the road by the George Massey Tunnel, those are called friction piles that are drilled straight down until they bind the earth together. So there's bridges all over the world have been built in similar soft soils, and uh, friction piles were what was being used. And they drilled several test sites of friction piles and loaded those piles with weights that would be similar to what would be on top of the bridge and everything uh, added up. What are your thoughts on the size of the tunnel? Eight lanes rather than ten. I know in the past, well, as you know, the ten-lane bridge, the work was being done. There was also an idea of a ten-lane tunnel. A lot of people have been pointing out today that when you take the two lanes away for dedicated transit, you're left with the same capacity we have now that's expected to open in 2030. Of course. So the NDP... Uh, first of all, they're, they're very good at making announcements, but they're sure not very good at carrying through and getting things done. So this is another announcement that they've made that everybody's, uh, you know, wonderful. They're going to take a victory lap on this somehow. But 10 years from now, let's wait and see if there's actually something built. Uh, as you said, uh, with the counterflow lane now, 
every morning and every afternoon, they switch over so that there's three lanes of commuter traffic and truck traffic that gets to go through the, the tunnel during rush hour. Well, it'll be no different. With their eight lanes, one lane will be for buses only, and there'll be three lanes for commuter traffic and trucks. So it's really no different than what's going through the tunnel now during rush hour. What are your what's your response then to Mayor George Harvey saying he's anticipating there will be such advances in buses and transit that that transit will really get people out of their vehicles? Well, you know, George and I are good friends and and we kind of chuckle because we uh, we get along great on on about 99 percent of the things. But maybe not maybe not this uh, tunnel replacement. But, uh, you know, right now there is what's called an HOV lane that that takes um, people that are two to a vehicle and buses right to the front of the queue. So they at least get to move up to almost the entrance of the tunnel. So they they have the advantage over commuters and uh, commercial truckers as it is now. Uh, and the idea of the, the separated pathway for cyclists and pedestrians, I think that's one as well. People, you can envision cycling and walking over a bridge. It's a bit more difficult to think about that or, or think about what that would look like in a submerged tunnel. Yeah, you know, Jill, I would have to see a, kind of a diagram of what this uh, submerged tunnel is going to look like. Uh, quite frankly, um, you know, I don't get scared by too many things, but if I'm stuck in the middle of the George Massey Tunnel now on a dark, dreary day, and uh, there's a there's some kind of a fender bender or a bumper, I don't really want to be there in the middle of that tunnel. And it's not going to change for people in the future that are you know walking or riding a bike through through a tunnel underneath the Fraser River, which brings me to the next topic of environmental assessment. I mean, what environmental assessment in in the the year 2021 or 2025 is going to come forward and say, yeah, we're, we're happy to see a massive concrete tube plunked in the Fraser River with spawning salmon and sturgeon and other marine life. Well, then how confident are you, because that's been pointed out as well, how confident are you that this will even get the environmental assessment approval that it needs to move forward? Uh, you know, I have a great, um, a great deal of... of um, trepidation that that um, the environmental assessment may not even be approved. I mean, you know, nowadays, if you want to do just about anything on the side of the Fraser River, whether you want to build a, a dock, a marina, a restaurant, anything, you have to go through all sorts of hoops to get environmental okays to do that. And I'm not sure how a massive concrete tube in the bottom of the Fraser River, uh, maybe you did stuff like that in 1959, but I don't think you do it now in this day and age. Do you think it would be easier to get the environmental assessment approval for a bridge? Well, I mean, that's already been done. So back in the days when uh, we got started on the bridge replacement, and, and don't forget, Jill, $100 million was spent with sand that got brought into preload. All the pilings are there that were tested. They're still laying on the side. There was a huge company moving all the hydro lines to go over top of the river. It was all, it was all in pro- progress, and the NDP killed the project. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure where, uh, you know, I'm kind of bewildered at this and, you know, how is this going to happen and, and will we see anything 10 years from now? What are your thoughts as well on getting federal funding for this? Well, um, you know, it's interesting that uh, this announcement should come, you know, literally days after the federal government has announced that there's going to be an election. So, of course, um, the Conservatives have already said they're, they're happy to uh, chip in towards this project. And I'm sure the federal Liberals and NDP will probably jump on board as well. So 
you know, there's probably going to be money there definitely from the federal government towards this project. I'm just not sure whether uh, the federal Ministry of Transportation would agree that it should be a tunnel under the river as opposed to a bridge. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are talking about this today. Appreciate you coming on the program today to also talk about the announcement. We'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. Certainly. Thank you very much, Jill. We often talk about affordable housing, about solutions to the housing crisis, the supply of housing in places where vacancy rates are extremely low and people are still looking for housing. Well, in one BC community, people will now be able to live in temporary structures, talking about things like recreational vehicles that are parked on residential lots. And joining me to talk more about what this is actually going to look like is Owen Torgerson, Mayor of Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, great to hear, be here. Thanks for having me. First, uh, I wanted to ask you, how bad is the, the housing, both the affordability and the availability where you are? Well, as a, as a community that has always been open to tourism, uh, it's been an ongoing uh, crunch. And it's, and it's not uncommon across uh, British Columbia. And it's certainly we are uh, something we are experiencing with the village. And how did this idea come about then to look at potentially letting people stay in a more kind of stable environment with a recreational type vehicle? Well, there there were concerns being raised. Uh, Folks uh, living in RVs, uh, people's driveways, yards, vacant lots. Um, You know, like I said, it was already present to a lesser degree, but uh, has been exasperated by the Trans Mountain expansion project. So we, we recognize that housing is, is very much a concern in the community and wanted to find a positive way to be sensitive to the issue. But also getting a handle on it um, before it got out of control. Uh, are there many people already living in your community that are living in RVs? Uh, you know, I, I can't put a number to it, but uh, there's, there's quite a few. And just so people are clear as well, I, I know you're north of Kamloops, uh, kind of uh, south of Mount Robson. How would you describe kind of where exactly your community is located? Some folks think we're in the middle of nowhere, but I think we're in the middle of everywhere. <laughs> we're kind of we're kind of halfway between we're that halfway stop between Edmonton, Alberta, and Vancouver, British Columbia, along oh. Highway Five, just before you get to Highway 16. All right. And how many permanent residents do, do you have? Uh, 2016 census would suggest we had just over 1,000. All right. And, and so for people that are looking for housing or looking for affordable housing, what is that like? It's, you know, it's a challenge. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're 100 kilometers from a national park. We're surrounded by five provincial parks. Uh, the housing market is pretty hot right now. Uh, and has been for for a number of years. Uh, finding something at a at a quote unquote affordable uh, rate uh, is definitely a challenge. Are, are people coming there, or do people are they using a lot of the accommodations as vacation properties? Uh, there are quite a few um, second homeowners uh, here in town, um, and those are used as short term vacation rentals. Uh, but they're also used by the homeowner themselves. So how, this particular idea then, opening the door for RVs to be more, uh, to be able to stay, I think it's, is it to allow people then they would be able to stay for up to four years? No, it's, 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 an, annual, it's an annual permit. And um, so 
So we set criteria in the policy that when a, a temporary use permit application to allow for an RV as a dwelling, you know, it's it, it's also a, a public uh, process. So we have a public hearing component to allow affected property owners and other residents to have their say on whether they feel an application should be approved or denied. Um, you know, and that's very short term. Uh, Long term, we've just adopted our new official community plan and, and we're in final reading of our brand new zoning bylaw. You know, and both these documents have a large emphasis on affordable housing and densifying residential use. So down the line, if a pro- private property owner is seeing sort of a revenue stream from having that RV uh, set uh, temporarily on their land, perhaps they'll get the idea to um, put up something a little bit more permanent, like an accessory dwelling unit, whether it be attached or detached from the principal residence. Uh, and what is the definition then? I know we've been talking mainly about RVs, but it, could it be somebody that sets up, say, a truck with one of the tents on top or even a tent on the land itself? We're, it, that's a great question. Um, a, an RV would typically have a um, factory uh, sticker. Uh, that recognizes it for its uh, safety and use. Uh, so something homemade or something that doesn't fall within the building code uh, would unlikely be considered. Would it have to have, say, sanitation washroom facilities? That would definitely be a bonus. And, and one of the things we're trying to get a, a handle on is how that would, um, it would be, it would have to be contained. And uh, if connecting to village water, say through a garden hose or what, however they choose to do it, it, it has to have a uh, backflow prevention. So there's uh, no chance of contamination to the rest of the water system. Right. Um, is the price then, uh, well, I understand the price then, the temporary use permit, to say if you were putting an RV on your property, is it $650? That's correct, yeah. And how did you come up with that that price for a yearly permit? It's basically the price uh, needed to actually process uh, an, app- an application. So taking it out to, uh, um, to the public, uh, either through newspaper advertisements, online, staff time, uh, things of that nature. Right. Are you concerned at all that this will lead to Valmont to having, uh, you know, you come into the village and everybody's house has, has kind of turned into a little RV park out front? Well, uh, a little RV park out front. So uh, we're very much a winter town. Um, and, and through the process of the temporary use permit, uh, setbacks will be established. So you, you can't be parking on um, village right away, for example. So out front won't be an option because come winter time, we'll be plowing snow and lots of it. Right. Uh, you'll have to maintain a distance from property lines. Um, and things like, like I'm not too worried about having one large RV park here. And again, uh, it, it is extremely temporary. Right. And, and that kind of, how do you make sure it's temporary? I know uh, that it's a yearly permit or it needs to be approved yearly, but if it gets to the point where that's the only housing somebody has, are you going to be in the position then that you don't approve the permit because the person's, the RV or the structure has been there too long? And if that's the case, then where do they go? that there lies in the challenge and also the opportunity for the property owners. Um, again, seeing that 
uh, influx of revenue generated by whatever rent they're charging uh, can certainly be uh, a mortgage helper down the road with a, with a secondary dwelling. Right. So like a secondary suite, but just one that's not really attached to your house. Yeah. Uh, the new zoning bylaw that we're, again, uh, we'll be considering fourth reading here shortly, um, identifies a secondary dwelling, uh, either detached or attached. Right. And I understand, too, uh, things like electricity and power also being considered. It could be anything from, say, a solar panel to being connected to the residents, the other residents, the permanent residents on the property. Yeah, as long as, long as it, it, it meets uh, the electrical code. Uh, so that cord, that, that power supply needs to be to a standard in which it would be passed by, say, an electrician or uh, technical uh, safety BC. Um, if this all goes ahead and works, it sounds like it is a great temporary solution. What do you then look at as far as permanent solutions to the housing situation? So with with our new zoning bylaw and our new OCP, I don't think there'll be a time in history uh, that there'll be an easier time to build uh, multifamily housing on uh, village lots here in Belmont. And uh, certainly uh, having that uh, option to build an accessory dwelling unit will certainly help long term. All right. Uh, interesting idea and uh, interesting to see if perhaps other villages will uh, follow suit or try anything try anything similar. Mayor Torgerson, thanks so much for taking the time with us. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, just if I can, uh, uh, our thoughts are with uh, colleagues down the line and their residents dealing with wildfire and uh, evacuation alerts and orders.